It's Light the Tower, your daily look around the world of sports with Hall of Fame broadcaster and voice of the Texas Longhorns, Craig Way. And Horns 24-7 insider, Jeff Howe. On your live, local, and independent home for sports talk in Austin, the Horn. Everyone's having a great Thursday, midday today across Ascentex here. And wherever you're listening, almost the brief end, not quite there yet, which means we're getting closer and closer to Texas baseball. The Super Regionals, the Longhorns taking on the Stanford Cardinal Craig Way. He is on his way out to Palo Alto today, so he will not be in for today's show. Jeff Howe will be in shortly, and so you're going to have me for the first couple segments here before Jeff comes back in, but should be a really fun show that they're going to get to some Denver Nuggets, Miami Heat Game 3 talk. Probably going to move things around a little bit, so when Jeff gets in closer to about 10, 45, 11 o'clock hour, we're going to move the Longhorn Notebook a little bit back so we can get a lengthier notebook for you guys, maybe move Inconceivable around. The flex segment up just a little bit earlier. But first, I wanted to start out with some live and PGA Tour talk. You know, you guys know me by now. I'm a big golf guy. And what better than get an expert in on the situation? So I'm pleased to go to the Fakeros Cafe and Cantina hotline to welcome in a golf.com contributor, Zephyr Melton. You can follow him on Twitter at Zephyr Melton. Zephyr, thanks for coming on, man. How are you doing? Uh, Cameron, thanks for having me, man. Happy to be here. Of course. Now it's been uh it's been two days since the the news of the PGA Tour, DP World Tour, and the Saudi Public Investment Fund merger. We still we don't really know a lot about it, but I think what what we do know, Zephyr, is a this is far from being complete. The DOJ could still block this. The PGA Tour Policy Board, the PAC Board, they could block this in B. It's not really a merger, Zephyr. That's correct. Yeah, it's uh, it's more of a forming of a new entity that will be uh, a joint venture between the PGA Tour, the DP World Tour, which is known also as the European Tour, and then the Saudi Public Investment Fund. So it's uh, it's creating a new entity. What that entity will look like and how it will operate, we're not really sure on so far. We just know that that's kind of their uh, their plan. And like you said, there's a lot of steps they've got to go through before this becomes uh, 
official, but yeah, they've made the announcement that's their intention. So um, yeah, pretty crazy. So hypothetically, let's just have some fun here. If this goes through, do you think it's going to be good for the game of golf or do you think it's going to be bad for the game of golf? I mean, I think it will be good for the game of golf in that the game will be unified. We'll have, uh, you know, not as much strife amongst some of the uh, major stakeholders. Um, So in that respect, yeah, it'll be good for the game of golf. Um, But another way of looking at it is now – the Saudi Public Investment Fund has a ton of pull in the game, and they kind of, uh, I, I hesitate to say they own the game, but they, they do have a large seat at the table now, and uh, that's uh, a little different than uh, I think any of us thought would be the case uh, about a week ago. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because for, for a while now, I think Saudi has been trying to find their way into the American sports ecosystem. It's, it kind of started maybe with Formula One. Now that's become so big here in the States. We've seen what is going on in soccer. They've already signed Ronaldo to a massive deal. They just signed Benzema. They almost pried away Leo Messi. He's going to stay in the MLS, actually. But they've been trying to get into the game of golf, both on the men's and women's sides. And, and now it feels like, the Saudis, you know, with this move, they kind of used live as a stepping stool to get to where they wanted to go. Now they're there, and they're starting to take over the world of sports. Yeah, I mean, you you said it. They um, they've made it uh, very clear that they want to be a big time player in sports, and um, I mean, they are making a pretty good headway there. Um, so yeah, now they're uh, they're a major player in golf. Um, whereas 48 hours ago, you know, they were they were just a disruptor, and now they are a major player with a seat at the table. So um, yeah, very interesting to see how that all unfolded. Yeah, 48 hours ago, the biggest news was what Phil Mickelson was responding to Brandel Shambly on Twitter. Now we have this talking with Sefer Melton of Golf dot com. Sefer, Alan Shipmuck had a good piece this morning on Fire Pit Collective about the future of Live Golf with Greg Norman. Now, a lot of the storyline, of course, here is the Live Golf, but it's really the, the Saudi part that's the biggest part, but still some do care about Live Golf. And Greg Norman uh, telling everyone at Live Golf, I guess yesterday or the day before, that Live isn't going anywhere, even though apparently he found out 10 minutes before the news dropped that this was going to be a merger. But what do you think becomes the Live Golf Tour? That's a good question. I think uh, what Jay Monahan had said is that the, they're going to let the season play out, and then at the end of the year they're going to do a uh, an audit of um, kind of that entire um, ecosystem that Liv has created, kind of see what works, what doesn't, and uh, go from there. So it's really impossible to say what will happen to Liv. Um, but, um, yeah, I... I can't see how it stays existing in its current form, um, but we we shall see. Um, all of this is just pure speculation at this point. Yeah, for sure. I'd be curious to see if Liv does become part of the fall wraparound season, if it gets mixed up maybe in between the elevated events as a takeover, the elevated events. Um, Roy McElroy has been a guy who's been 
front and center for Jay Monahan. He's been very vocal against anti-live, vocal for the PGA Tour. But then all of this comes out. If you're Roy McIlroy, if you're another PGA Tour player, how are you able to trust what Jay Monahan is going to do going forward? Yeah, I think that's the million or billion dollar question at this point is how does anyone trust Jay? I think uh, if you watched Rory's press conference yesterday, you could see he was obviously pretty hurt by the way that it all went down and how he was not really um, privy to the uh, the information that um, he needed. And so, it, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, any of those big players, like I don't know how you trust them at this point. Jay kind of torpedoed that, uh, that trust in one, uh, one CNBC uh, interview um, earlier this week whenever they made the announcement. So, yeah, at this point, I don't know how the players can trust him. Um, I think that's going to kind of be his uh, his uh, goal over the next few months is rebuilding that trust and trying to get the, the big-time players to buy in again. Um, so we'll see if that will uh, be able to happen. And Jay did meet with some of the PGA Tour players uh, at the RBC Canadian Open. Apparently the meeting was pretty tense, heated, and it included – uh, Grayson Murray, who I honestly did not know was still on the tour calling for a change in leadership. Apparently there was some um, applause. Roy McIlroy told Murray to play better. Murray uh, cussed him out. I'm just curious, um, what was your biggest takeaway from the players' meeting if there was anything else that you heard from it? Yeah, I mean, at this point, we don't know a ton about what happened. You know, just kind of those things that have been reported. There was no media inside, so... Um, we have a writer up there who's been snooping around trying to trying to get to the bottom of all this. But yeah, from what we've heard, it was a very tense meeting. Um, players were justifiably not too pleased with Jay, um, and the announcement just based on you know the last two years of what's been transpiring. So yeah, um, players were not too pleased, but um, you know that was pretty raw emotion that everyone was going through. So over the next few weeks, as um, things start to cool down a little bit, I think we'll get a better sense of what the uh, what the temperature of that room actually was. And while we await to find out what really happens here, there is the, the possibility that whether you like or dislike this agreement, we're going to have the Live guys back playing the same events, possibly on the PJ Tour. And that includes Brooks Kepka, Dustin Johnson, and others, but it's not going to be a, an easy process for them to get back, and it doesn't mean that they're all going to be eligible to play in the Ryder Cup this year, right? Yeah, my understanding is that this year is going to continue kind of as it has, where they will be separate. Uh, the Live guys will be doing their thing. The PGA Tour guys will be doing their thing, and the uh, the Ryder Cup kind of stipulations will uh, remain intact. So I don't think we're going to see all those European guys who renounce their membership be on that team because they, I think at the end of the year, will have to go through a reinstatement process. They'll have to serve suspensions, pay fines, whatever that looks like. So I think throughout the rest of this year, everything is going to kind of remain the way we've seen it, maybe with a little bit less uh, animosity in the, in the press, but yeah, 
for now, everything uh, remains the same. And, of course, this doesn't just affect the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour. It also is going to have an effect on golf on a brighter scale, right, the Corn Ferry Tour. And even the women's side, Sephra, I know you've done a lot of great coverage on the women's side, and the the pay has always been an issue, right? What the, what the women make is stark in contrast compared to what the PGA Tour guys can make. And if you're a player on the LPGA Tour and you get offered sums of money that you didn't even dream of making, it makes sense to take that money even though it might be, quote-unquote, blood money or sports washing. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, there's, there hasn't been a ton of movement on the women's front um, in terms of live and anything like that, um, at least over the last six months or so. I know there were some preliminary conversations uh, last fall, just like some, you know, some feelers that were put out. I've uh, confirmed that with agents and uh, a couple players. But, yeah, nothing really has happened lately on that front, but now that the Saudis have uh, cozied up to the PGA Tour. I find it, um, I would find it hard to believe that they wouldn't um, try some sort of similar thing with the LPGA Tour in the coming years. But like you said earlier, there are a lot of steps to go through before we even get this uh, live PGA Tour, DP World Tour kind of uh, deal over the finish line. So, there are many steps to take before we uh, we can even start thinking about the uh, the women being folded into this as well. That is for sure. Talking with Sefer Melton of Golf.com. Now, that's enough PJ Tour lift talk. U.S. Opens next week over in uh, Los Angeles, California, the LACC Country Club. Sefer, I saw your cameo in No Ling's Up Media Day video, so I know you got a chance to play the course. What did you make of it? Oh, man, it's just a fabulous golf course. It's uh I mean, it's very cool. It's kind of right in the middle of Hollywood. It's uh, So it's going to make for a really cool setting. Uh, the course is very interesting. It's uh, the front nine kind of wraps through a, uh, a little uh, valley on the back nine canyon kind of thing. So it's a little tighter, a little um, you need to kind of, place your ball a little better. The back nine opens up a little more. It's kind of up on the hillside, so there's a little more room out there. It's uh, it's definitely one of the more interesting courses I've ever played, and I'm uh, I'm excited to see how the, the pros tackle it next week. There's five par threes on this golf course, including a ranging, rather, from 85 yards to 290 yards, so it feels like the par threes are going to play a, a huge part in this tournament, especially, I believe there's a par three on the 16th hole. So it feels like this course is really going to favor the ball strikers. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. With the you know uh, U.S. Opens, you can't fake it. You've got to show up and hit the shots. Um, but like you said, yeah, the par threes are very interesting. They've got the short hole that, you know, when we played it, I think it was playing like 95 yards. And then, as you alluded to, the the monstrous uh, 11th hole, I believe it is, and play up to 290 yards down the hill. So, yeah, there's a variety of uh, shots that you'll need to be able to hit. I think it'll make players hit just about every club in their bag. It's going to be really fun to see. 
Now, for media day, did you guys play it at the full 290 yards? We did not. No, <laughs> that that would be a little little too much a uh, little too much golf hole for I think most media members. So we played it at a much more reasonable. I think it played at 230 while we were out there. So definitely not short. But no, we did not tip it all the way out. People would be hitting drivers at that hole. Um, okay, yeah, last no doubt. One of the last questions I got for you. Um, early pick. Who do you think wins the U.S. Open next week? Well, you know, I, I'll um, I'll pander to my audience a little bit, but we got to go with Scotty here. Yeah, I mean, he his ball striking has been unbelievable all year. Obviously, the putter has been a huge issue. He's uh, he's not been rolling it well, but he's been hitting the ball so well that he's finishing in the top five just about every week. And if he can. He doesn't even need to be an average putter to win. He just needs to not be one of the worst in the field. And uh, I think he'll be there right at the end. Yeah, I'm glad you men- mentioned Scotty. I-, I know you followed him extensively during your time at UT on the Corn Ferry Tour dur- during his rise. His ball striking has actually been better than it was last year. But his putting, I believe it was one of the worst of the Memorial last week. It was one of the worst of the PGA Championship on Saturday that really cost him a chance to win that tournament. It was awful at the Charles Schwab. I mean, we can all be Budge Harmon here and analyze what we see watching the broadcast, but you know, what do you think the issue is with his putting when it's been one of the worst of the season, yet he still has been managed to get two wins and hasn't had a worse finish outside T11th since the CJ Cup in South Carolina back in October of 2022? Yeah. I, I I really don't know what the issue is with this putter. I, you know, I'm not, I've not seen him enough in person and talked to him enough about it to really know. Um, and obviously the margins are so slim that it can be the most minuscule thing that causes you to have issues. But, I mean, like you said, it's certainly been an issue and something to keep an eye on, but he's hitting the ball so good that, it's impossible not to like him next week. Yeah, he'll be going in as one of the favorites along with John Rahm and Roy McIlroy. Last one for you, Seth, before we let you go. Now, I know you went to UT, but you're also from the Lubbock area, and there's a golfer who played his college golf in Lubbock, Ludwig Aberg, who's making his PJ Tour debut this week as a professional. He was already four under through nine holes. He's three under through 12, tied for fourth. So... Are, are you a big Ludwig guy or because you're a Longhorn, you kind of don't want to, you know, root for a Red Raider or what, what's going on here? What's your thoughts on this in, sensational kid, Ludwig, Ludwig Aper? Oh man, I, I haven't watched Ludwig enough, but I've just heard so many good things about him. Um, you know, talking to coach Sands up there in Lubbock, he raves about him. Um, so obviously, uh, you know, We'll put allegiances aside here, and I'll, I'll say I'm a Ludwig fan. Um, I think he'll be good for the game. He seems like the next uh, the next European uh, with star potential, so it will be exciting to see how his career pans out. But, yeah, I'm making a splash in his pro debut right now. Yeah, no doubt. It'll be fun to watch him for years to come, especially in the Ryder Cup. Sefer, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate you stopping by. Cameron, thanks for having me. We'll talk soon. All right. See you, man. Thanks. That's Sefer Melton of golf.com. You can check him and find him out on Twitter 
at Zephyr Melton, uh, a great follow here as we get really into the deep things with this Live PJ Tour stuff. Um, who knows what's going to happen with this process? Uh, like Zephyr said, we are very, very early into this. It does not mean next week you're going to see Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson back on the PGA Tour. It might not be most likely until next season, but one thing we do know is there's going to be a lot of drama involved, and there's going to be a lot of major shakeups, I think, on the PGA Tour, starting with Jay Monahan. Glad you guys are joining with us here on this Thursday mid-morning in Austin, Texas. We got some Texas baseball talk coming up. Craig Way, he is on his way out to California with the Longhorns. We'll face the Stanford Cardinal. Can the Horns get their 39th College World Series appearance? We're going to hear from Jeff Howe. His thoughts on that. He'll be joining us here very shortly to get his thoughts on that. More things in the Longhorn Notebook, a little inconceivable, and a Flex ATX update. But coming up next, we're going to get some Denver Nuggets in Miami Heat Talk. Game three, Nuggets back in front. Craig Way and Jeff Howe. Light the tower. Spend my days with a woman unkind. Smoke my stuff and drink. All through my mind. Made up my mind. Make a new start. I wonder if Craig Way listens to this song as he getting ready to board. Maybe you've already boarded on the way in the air of the Texas baseball team as they travel out to California. The Palo Alto for the Super Regionals, Texas, and number eight seed Stanford as the Longhorns try and earn their 39th appearance in the College World Series out in Omaha. David Pierce and the Horns, they've made it back to back trips to Omaha. And here's a little a little nugget for Texas fans if you're hopeful that the Longhorns can pull off the upset. David Pierce has not lost a super regional series. Remember since 2017 his first season, they lost in the Long Beach Regional. He's now undefeated since then in the regionals and he's not lost a super regional series yet so we'll see either way it's going to be a really real fun weekend all across the college baseball level so texas and sanford that's going to get started on saturday you'll be able to hear all of it right here on the horn with craig way himself saturday and sunday and if necessary a believe it's a monday game i'll double check that for you guys make sure i'm accurate but it'll be sev Yes, it will. So Saturday, 5 p.m. Central Time, you can listen right here on The Horn. If you want to watch, maybe sync up Craig Way to your TV. ESPN2, for sure. Sunday and Monday, those two games, TBA, there will be a game, too. Have not heard where, what time the game will be. It'll probably be on the ESPN Family Networks for both Game 2 and Game 3, if necessary. But Texas looking to earn their 39th trip to Omaha. Jeff Howe will be here shortly. We'll get some Longhorn notebook, maybe some more Texas baseball discussion. I want to save that for him. But before we get into our Flex ATX update, I wanted to talk about last night's Game 3 between the Denver Nuggets and the Miami Heat. And actually, before that, 
I'd be remiss if I did not open up the Specs text line. 512-337-3776. A text coming in. I think mentioning, I mentioned that you won't see the live guys on the PJ Tour next week. Well, I mean, technically you will because this is the U.S. Open, so you will see those guys. But I see what you meant, Texture. See what you meant. But they won't be a PGA Tour card carrying member. They will be playing an event that it will be co-sanctioned with the PGA Tour. That will be the U.S. Open out at the Los Angeles Country Club, the North Course. Um, if you missed the first part of the show, if you want to get your Live Golf PGA Tour fix, maybe some U.S. Open early preview Sefer Melton of Golf.com stopped by. Really great discussion as the game of golf has been severely disrupted, kind of being pieced back together with a little bit of glue and tape. We'll see uh, what ends up in the world of golf. But one thing we do know is that it's far from being over with. You know what else is far from being over with? That's the NBA Finals, although Denver on top in Game 3 last night. In Miami, a critical rubber match game after the Miami Heat were able to tie things back up in game two. And obviously, after every game, we kind of look at it and we have our reactions, but we we don't really know. We don't get the full view of what happened right until sometimes a game later. And I think that's the case with with game two. The Heat, they shot 68% in the fourth quarter. 50% 50% from three. And they only won by three points. Now, you could say it was just one of those fluke games. But, I mean, when, you're in the, when you've made it this far in the NBA Finals, you're, you're, not, you're not winning based on just pure luck, right? The Miami Heat are a good basketball team. The thing is, they're playing an even better basketball team in the Denver Nuggets. So, for Miami to really win this series even have a chance, they need those game two recipes where it felt like, you know, Denver, they, they won game one, but it it wasn't their best, right? I feel like the Nuggets have a, a higher ceiling of how good they can play. They hung on for game one. And I think in game two, they were sloppy defensively. Coach Mike Malone said, you know, when looking back at the tape in the film, there was 40 points that the Denver Nuggets gave up just on defensive mismatches. 40 points. Tim Legler of ESPN counted nine three-pointers made by Miami that were just off of mismatches. Duncan Robinson started the fourth quarter in game two with 10 straight points. Jimmy Butler didn't really have a Jimmy Butler game, and Miami still won. And so I think a lot of people thought, okay, if Butler can play even to his level that we saw in the Boston series, Miami can win this thing. But I think people kind of forgot that, you know what, the Denver Nuggets... You know, they have a higher ceiling. And we saw that ceiling last night in game three. Halftime, Miami Heat, they had one turnover. One turnover at home. Who do you think's winning at halftime? Not the Miami Heat. They were down by five points despite only turning over the ball once. I believe they went to the fourth quarter with just one turnover as well. They played a great first half, I thought. But you know who played better in the first half? The Denver Nuggets. Jokic, he came out and he continued to play like the best player in the world. Jamal Murray was everywhere. And defensively, I thought they were a lot better in communication. The effort was there. Game two was just kind of like, 
yeah, yeah, you know, we we know we're better than you, so we're not going to give you 100%. I, I felt like the Nuggets kind of played 80% in game two. I did not feel that way last night. They were everywhere. Looking out in the third quarter, Michael Porter Jr., he got hammered for his performance in game two, and rightfully so. I mean, defensively, he was watching the ball. He looked like the MPJ, you know, when he came in as a rookie. A lot of question marks were about, his defense, we know he's talented, but defensively, where's his effort going to be? Well, he tried. In game two, it wasn't there. But last night, he was everywhere in that third quarter, I thought. It was a five-point lead. I believe going into the fourth quarter, uh, it was 14. But in that third, Denver had it up to 19 points. I mean, Porter Jr. was all over the place contesting shots. And it wasn't just Michael Porter Jr. It was everyone defensively. Aaron Gordon. I thought, had an incredible game, not only on the boards, but on the defensive side. I mean, Jokic finished with, we'll get to Jokic in just a second, because what he did last night was absolutely absurd. But Jokic, who had, if I can find it, he had 21 rebounds last night, but Denver out-rebounded Miami by, I believe, 25. I know I know. if you took, yeah, if you took away Jokic's 21 rebounds, Denver still out-rebounded Miami by four. By four. That's how much Denver dominated Miami on the glass. And it started started from the jump in that third quarter, really extended their lead. Miami had a big, a big 5-0 run to close the quarter. They went back to the zone. I think it was a, a 1-3-1 zone at, at one point. They, they forced a Jokic turnover, and then they got a, a shot that was missed as well. But also, one guy really heated up. In that third quarter, Christian Brown. Oh, oh man. The former Kansas standout, national champion, a rookie. He was kind of a fringe rotation guy in the playoffs, been getting a little bit of minutes. He took over game three in the fourth quarter. I mean, he started out, he had a couple big buckets to end the third quarter, and then in the fourth, he had a he had a, let me find it real quick. He had a big, first of all, he had a huge and one opportunity after Murray found him off a, a double team. He had a drive in on Jimmy Butler where he just was more physical, put up a right-handed floater. He had 15 points in that game. We, we mentioned Duncan Robinson's fourth quarter in game two, right? Those 10 points. I mean, these games are decided. You know, you have the performances from Jokic and Murray and Bam and Butler but a lot of times, there's that one random guy that has a big run that changes the game. It was Robinson in game two last night. It was Christian Brown. And defensively, was everywhere. He had the big steal that turned into that right-handed hammer to the end of the third quarter. I think it was maybe the fourth quarter. But, but that spurred, really, Denver to take control of the fourth quarter, right? And then Miami came out. They had a big 7-0 run. They thought, oh, okay. Now they're kind of getting their way back into it. Uh, a couple turnovers forced possibly, I think, by the zone. Coach Spo trying to, trying to turn to it. Uh, one thing I, I did like that Denver changed was in game two, we saw Jokic kind of standing around the three-throw line. They moved Jokic more into the dunker spot. And that allowed for, one, well, when Jokic has the ball, everyone's going to be watching him, right? So with Miami watching Jokic from the dunker spot, it felt like Denver 
was cutting more. And I think also in game two, you know, the cuts to the basket you know, kind of were at 80%. But in this one, whether it was Porter Jr. or Bruce Brown, who had some, he had a couple big defensive plays too on Bam out of bottle to start that fourth quarter, or even Christian Brown. Brown had a couple cuts to the basket, and then it went both ways. Brown also would penetrate, and he would find Jokic. And Jokic would get an easy layup. So even after that 7-0 run for Miami, lead was down the 14. Uh, both teams started trading a couple jumpers. Jamal Murray had this ridiculous fadeaway double-team jumper. Then Gabe Vincent had a big bank. KCP was fouled off a great feed from Jokic, cutting the basket again. Cutting to the basket It's what Denver does so well is moving without the ball in your hands. That led the two three throws. And Kyle Lowry got down to 14 points. And I thought this was possibly the, the biggest point in the game because there was about four or five minutes left to go. The lead is 14. Jokic got in the paint, missed a layup that rolled out. So Miami has the ball, and Jimmy Butler had a three-point shot on the left wing and I thought Aaron Gordon did a great job. We saw in game two, right, KCP had two fouls on three-pointers. That really just absolutely killed Denver's momentum. One was on Kyle Lowry at the end of that fourth quarter. It led to three three-throws. Lowry hit all three, allowed Miami to win that game. Remember, by three points. But in this one, it felt like Denver was playing more defensively. It was playing smarter, right? Aaron Gordon, great contest. Great contest. Didn't foul him. Butler would miss that three-pointer, and then right after that, that was with four minutes to go, Jokic had a huge layup over Bam Adebayo, and that that was basically curtains. Miami would get it back down to 13. There was a weird part in that game where, I don't know if you guys saw it, but the lead was down to about 13 with two minutes left, and Spo was already subbing out Butler and Bam and Lowry. It was like, ah, I mean, there's still a chance, right? And then Duncan Robinson hit back-to-back threes. Got it down to nine points, but there was not enough time left. And by then, Spo had already kind of put the reserves in. But what, what a huge fourth quarter for Denver. The, the first two games, Miami outscored Denver in the fourth quarter. And then, I don't know if you guys caught it in the, the ESPN, you know, mic'd up segment going to the fourth. Mike Malone told his team, let's win this fourth quarter. And they did, 27-26. Now, Miami had a couple of big points in garbage time. Robinson, those those couple threes. So really, it was more lops. It wasn't as close as the box score indicated. But that's the Denver team that we've seen all year long, right? And we didn't see it in game two. Maybe they just need a little wake-up call, something to spur them. But when they play like that in all cylinders, they're the best team in the world. And it's why I think Denver still wins this series five or six points. Real quick on Jimmy Butler in the fourth quarter. Now, he finished the game with a team-high 28 points. Do you guys know what he did in the fourth last night? 0 for 2 from the floor with two points. I'm sorry. I'm not going to cut it. Not going to cut it. You're the team's best player, and you're going 0 for 2 in a must-win game three at home in the fourth quarter. I mean, we, we, I'm curious if there's an ankle injury with Butler. We know he got banged up earlier in the playoffs. Maybe it's really impeding him right now. But, I mean, there, there's times in the fourth quarter in the series where it just feels like, oh, 
Jimmy's on the floor. That's right. Oh, okay. Bam Adebayo's been the best player of the Miami Heat this entire series. On offense, on defense. It's been it's felt like Bam's team. Jimmy, he has not felt like the Jimmy we saw in the Celtics series last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was, where he was dominating on defense and on offense. He was talking smack. He was letting the Celtics know who was the best player on the floor, even if it even if it may have been Tatum. Butler felt like he was in this series. No, no, it's you're not even the best player on your team right now, dude. And maybe it is injury. Maybe we find out after the season ends. Oh yeah, Butler, his ankle was messed up. Well, you know, part of winning a championship is being able to stay healthy. And if that's what's going to hurt Miami, then so be it. Denver's, you know, part of it is just having injury luck, and, and Denver's been very fortunate. On Jokic, last night, finished with 32 points, 21 rebounds, and 10 assists. He is the first player in NBA Finals history to put up 30, 20, and 10 in a game. And it feels like, ah, okay, cool, man. That's cool. What Jokic is literally breaking records every single night in the league. I mean, there's only been five, only five times has a player put up 30, 20, and 10 in the NBA playoffs, in the playoffs. Three of those, Jokic. The other two guys, Wilt Chamberlain and Kareem Abdul-Javar. Every time Jokic breaks a record, yeah. Oh, yeah, that was last done by Wilt Chamberlain. Yeah, when there was, what, 16 teams in the league? And Chamberlain was the biggest guy by, what, two feet? Yeah, Jokic is being is breaking those records from a guy that did that what half a century ago. If you don't think Jokic is the best player in the planet, I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, an incredible game. Remember, he only had four assists in Game Two. That was a huge part of you know. Oh, can you, can my Denver win if Jokic doesn't have more than five assists? It, it was a big part of it. But Mike Malone adjusted, moved Jokic around. Uh, I mentioned earlier from the dunker spot on the sideline. It felt like that really helped Denver kind of manipulate Miami's zone because we know Spo is going to be playing that zone throughout the game. But Jokic, an incredible performance. Uh, Jamal Murray, 34-10-10. He had some huge buckets in that fourth quarter. There was a, there was a, a layup, I think. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah. Lee was down the 15 points. You know, it's still in that range of, you know, it felt like Denver had it, but, you know, maybe Miami, a couple threes. Who knows what happens? It was after Bam was fouled. Lee was down the 15. Murray got a switch with Bam, drove to his right, and threw up this circus layup shot. If you know what I'm talking about, I thought at first it hit the top of the backboard. And I think Mike Breen, who is, I think, by far the best play-by-play broadcaster on the planet right now. I think Mike Breen even thought it also hit the top because I think he waited to see if, wait, does that ball go out of bounds? No. And on replay, it didn't. It hit the very top of the backboard. Incredible touch. It would go in. Lee would go back up to 17. Um, That may have been curtains. There's multiple times in this fourth quarter where you could think this game is over with. I mean, Miami... I think it was Gabe Vincent put up a three-pointer that didn't even hit rim, and then Denver would come back, get a couple free throws. Felt like the game was over anyway, but Jamal Murray, it just oh, a great 
great finals run for him, a great season. It's been so much fun to watch Jamal Murray and what he's done this season. Game four, a couple days. Um, I mean, we use must win a lot. I use it a lot. It feels like if Miami doesn't win, then I think Denver gets it in five at home. I mean, if Denver plays like that last night, it's going to take a game two type performance where Miami's just going to have to shoot 70% in a quarter and hit half of their threes. It's the only way. Do we know maybe is Tyler Tyler Hero going to come back? I've heard some theories that, okay, you know, Miami was just trying to bide as much time as possible before Hero could come back. You know, he mentioned he's he's been participating in shoot-around before games this entire postseason, but, you know, he's felt like his hand just isn't quite 100%. Does Miami maybe push to bring him back? But is he even enough to really change the outcome of this series? Those are my thoughts on NBA Finals Nuggets. I think Nuggets get it done in five, guys. I think it's five. Jokic and Jamal Murray, an incredible duo. Um, and shout out Christian Braun as well for what his performance did in last night, game three. All right. Don't worry. I know a lot of people clamoring for uh, some Texas baseball talk. Um, I'm done with the NBA. No more golf talk. No more NBA talk. I promise. I swear. Jeff Howe, he's almost here. We're going to get you some Longhorn notebook and more coming up here as Light the Tower on the Horn continues. Flex ATX for the best high school sports coverage. Listen to the horn and go to FLXATX.com. Flex 30 is brought to you by Brain Vault. Brain Vault is a revolutionary and patented mouth guard that has been proven to help reduce the risk of concussion. Visit BrainVault.com and join the movement. All right, wrapping up hour number one here on Light the Tower. Got to move inconceivable back because... Getting, getting some news that Jeff Howe is around the corner. So I know you guys, you want to get your Texas Longhorn fix. We're going to get that, that Longhorn notebook, possibly some inconceivable. But first, um, a little Flex 30 update for you. The Texas High School Baseball State Championships are underway this week. Game is being played at the Dishfont Field and the Dell Diamond. 1A, well, the semifinals have been wrapped up. Abbott beat Kennard 5-4. Fayetteville beat Nazareth 4-0 in the 1A. So right now, Abbott and Faithful playing in the 1A state championship game at Del Diamond. Abbott is up on Fayetteville 6-3 in the bottom of the 7th. So if you you know want to get to the end of that, Abbott just three outs away from clinching uh, a state championship. They've had a great run all across the board. I think football, basketball, they've been absolutely killing it. So congrats to Abbott if they can, if they can hold on. Uh, some 2A scores, the 2A finals. Uh, Shiner in Harleton, they're playing in the 2A championship game. So that's going to follow right after that one. It's a 12 o'clock first pitch over at, at Dell Diamond. Um, now, if you want to watch any of these games, uh, nfhsnetwork.com. They're going to have everything for you. Um, you can also find stats if you want to keep up live stats. Um, there is statbroadcast.com. Or just go to the UIL page, uh, just Google machine. Texas UIL High School Baseball. You can follow along. So, Shiner in Harleton. That's going to start here in just a bit. Other baseball scores um, for you. Uh, China Spring played sitting last night. The number one ranked sitting Pirates. I believe the vending state championship champions, rather. They lost last night. What an upset for China Spring. Remember, they beat the Taylor Ducks in a best-of-three series won it 
games two and game three, but China Spring knocking off Sitton, so they advancing to the 4A championship final first, Texarkana. Ooh, they knocked off Randall 15 to 5. Uh, 4A? Actually, yeah, 4A and 5A, that will begin today as well. Magnolia West first Frisco Reedy. It's the first game of 5A. Uh, 4A, China Spring first Texarkana Liberty. That's going to be the 4A final later on today as well. And the last game tonight will be the other 5A semifinal game. Argyle first Bernie champion. They knocked off Rouse. And of course, Westlake will be in action tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, first pitch against Pearland as well. And before we hit the break here, last night was our Flex ATX podcast show. In case you missed it, we had McNeil Mavericks head coach Scott Hermes. He joined the program at the top of the hour. And then Westlake wideout Heath McCree, uh, the three-star wideout. He'll be a rising senior this year. Uh, he's getting some big looks from some big Power 5 programs. He joined the show with myself and Zach Lazaro. A uh, great kid, some great stories. Remember his brother, Texas fans. His brother is Lake McCree. Does that name ring a bell for you? It might. Now, Lake was a Lake Travis. Lake Travis graduate. His brother, Heath, a Westlake graduate. So you know there's some um, there's some uh, little rivalry already added to the brother-brother relationship. So um, got, got a little insight on what it's, what it's like to have an older brother that plays for Lincoln Riley that plays out for USC. So in case you missed it, it's on the Horn Podcast page and the Flex ATX podca- podcast page as well. All right. That wraps up hour one here on the Horn. Glad you stopped by. Uh, hope you enjoyed all the PGA Tour live talk, all the NBA talk. But got some good news for you guys. Jeff Howe, back in the building. I'm here. You're back, baby. Personal business is done. Let's talk some Longhorn football. Let's do it. Do that right after we come back here for hour number two. Let the tower on the horn. Live, local, and digital on the Horn app and at hornfm.com. <laughs> 